0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the CatNaps podcast with me, Jeremy, a member of the public, Christy Sanderson, the Principal Investigator, and Lucy Clark, the Clinical Trials Unit Research Lead at the University of East Anglia. Poor sleep and fatigue are common in acute and emergency healthcare staff, and the COVID-19 pandemic has left many staff stressed and exhausted. This project will explore how fatigue can be managed in the NHS ambulance workforce and the best ways staff can be helped to sleep better. CATNAPS is an nhr funded study looking to produce an Ambulance Trust National Fatigue Risk Management System that is acceptable and feasible to improve safety for patients and staff. The purpose of this series of podcasts is to share with listeners news of the progression of the study and hopefully provide an interesting discussion worthy of your time listening. First of all, Christy, has has something struck you since the last podcast that has thrown new light in corners hitherto darkened by mystery?
1: So this week I've started listening to our staff interviews that have started to come in. So a really exciting phase of the project where we're starting to interview frontline staff so they can tell us all about their experiences of fatigue, what they currently do and what they'd like to, to see changed. And was listening to a really interesting um, anecdote of trying to unpack the practicalities of how you would actually make some of this improved fatigue management work in practice. So was listening to this interview um, with an experienced paramedic who was asking the really important question, what if I want to tell someone that if I'm fatigued? What if I actually recognize severe fatigue in myself on shift and I feel unsafe, what could I possibly do about that? Do I call it in and say I'm unsafe? That would be a sensible thing to do. Um, In the aviation industry, for example, people can be stood down if they're feeling unsafe or if if a crew has worked for too long beyond sort of recommended hours. But in something like a, a hugely busy ambulance service that's kind of under constant high demand, what could happen? Even if they could tell someone, the system's not quite got its processes in place to actually do something about that in real time. They can't stand a crew down very easily. They can't find a replacement paramedic very easily. So this interviewee was really interested in trying to unpack how things would actually work. So it was a really nice conversation for me reflecting the sorts of input we were getting from leaders in ambulance services, all asking the question of how do we make this work. There's lots of things we'd like to do differently, but how do we actually work within our existing processes or introduce new processes um, to make these changes?
0: Are you getting the impression that this study is throwing light onto this topic of fatigue and people are now beginning to think themselves about the topic that otherwise they wouldn't have thought of?
1: So it's a, it's a really interesting question because ambulance services and the NHS more broadly and, in fact, any, any sort of 24-hour healthcare service knows that staff fatigue is an issue. So it's almost like the, the, the big unspoken known that at any point in time there will be a significant proportion of staff who we might consider are actually dangerously fatigued. The issue in the NHS or any kind of public health care provider is the capacity to respond to that mm-hmm. in a meaningful way. Because, of course, you could say, well, you know, we just need more staff or, you know, we need to break up our shifts differently and, and have people working shorter shifts. All of those seem like really intractable, challenging problems. So they just get put aside and thought, well, we know it's there, but there's no point talking about it because there's nothing we can do about it. What we've tried to do in this project is unpack the problem in a kind of a bit more depth and detail to say actually of course we can't solve staffing challenges overnight but we've got a list of 20 evidence-based steps that ambulance services could take that are beyond just looking at staffing or rotors. So there's an enormous amount that could be done, some of which is already starting to be done. So it's trying to understand how can we keep that focus ...on even sometimes the small steps that we can change to improve fatigue management... ...and not just saying, well, we can't change roaches," so it's all too hard.
0: Are you getting the sense that there's a willingness to be interviewed... ...or whether there's a degree of suspicion and reluctance to be interviewed... ...amongst the people you're interviewing?
1: Oh, it's been <coughs> extraordinary. So we, we had just opened a recruitment um, in one ambulance service... ...just for a couple of days um, and we had more than 40 people... Wow. ...put their hand up to say, interview me. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we're, it, we've actually got the, um, you know, really lucky problem... Of, of, ...of having more people put their hand up... ...than we, we've probably got capacity to interview. But, you know, we'll certainly we'll be getting back to everybody... ...and we'll, we'll get as many people through as we can. So I think there is a great deal of appetite to talk about this. And I think particularly in the context of a research study because we are independent mm-hmm. from their service. We will take the information as we receive it. we will do high quality analysis, we will feed it back to the individuals and to the services and I think there's power in that um, and particularly working with health professionals in services, they know the power of research and evidence. So, you know, we've been absolutely delighted with, with the initial response.
0: That's really very encouraging because it does indicate that whatever changes you recommend you, you recommend at the end of this is going to have a lot of staff support.
1: We would certainly hope so. Certainly staff who are really engaged to have a conversation about this and explore ways that things can be done differently. And that part of the research process is important because it reflects how change would happen in services after the life of this project because any change needs to be in consultation with staff. So they are there, ready, waiting, willing to give their opinion and... Um, so I think it's, yeah, it, it's it's an exciting next few months for us. Golly,
0: I'm looking forward to finding out what's going to happen next. Uh, at what point, Christy, did you invite Lucy to take part in the study, uh, help listeners understand Lucy's role and skills here and, and how she came to be recruited?
1: So Lucy and I first started working together back in 2017. So I moved to University of East Anglia in January 2017 um, and I was very lucky that I had some startup funds and some money um, to employ a researcher to help me build up my research program. Um, so Lucy was very lucky stepped into that into that role, and it just so happened Lucy bought a background in fatigue. At about the same time, we were approached um, by an ambulance service that had started to sort of think about its staff well-being and some early indications that fatigue could be of interest. Um, was being mentioned to us. So we kind of had this really nice coming together of sort of interests and expertise on our side um, and what one of our kind of health delivery partners was sort of interested in in terms of their staff experience. So um, we just sort of started a, a conversation and then were lucky enough to get a bit of seed funding to do our first study on sleep and fatigue together.
0: Cool. So where where does a clinical trials unit feature in this research? What does it, cl- it explain f- to our listeners who don't know, what what does a clinical trials unit do?
1: So there's really (coughs) fantastic um, health research infrastructure um, across the UK. And one of those parts of sort of supporting bodies are uh, are clinical trials units. And they are a group of highly experienced um, researchers and data analysts and project managers who help deliver studies in the NHS and other health and social care settings. So their job is to get the research done that a variety of of other organisations will fund. So they are kind of the experts in delivery analysis um, of research. So they often will work on what we call a randomized clinical trial. So that's where we are trying to understand um, the effectiveness or outcomes from different ways of providing care. So Lucy's in in a really interesting role. So Lucy is uh, co investigator on our project. So she's one of our sort of lead lead researchers who helped design and, and is helping deliver the project. Um, but our project itself is not going through the clinical trials unit. So oh. Lucy kind of has two hats. She has her um, investigator role with us and then her day, day job of working in the clinical trials unit.
0: Oh, I see. I know, clinical trials government funded?
1: Uh, funding comes <laughs> from a mixture of sources. Okay. So a lot of it will be public monies of some sort, Yeah.
0: Hmm. Uh, turning now to Lucy, um, what were you doing before Lucy approached you to help with this study?
2: So, uh, well, yes, as Christy just mentioned, I was working in London before I start, I came down to work with Christy um, here on this project. And my background, as she suggested, is in chronic fatigue. So I worked as a researcher um, with clinical trials, so managing clinical trials, um, In fatigue in primary care so for example if somebody was attending their doctor and reporting that they were tired all the time whether that be for a shorter term or for a longer term like chronic fatigue type syndrome uh, then they would be potentially referred into the research that we were we were doing Um, and we were offering different treatments for that so that's the work I was doing.
0: You you mentioned your your abiding interest in fatigue so what interests you about fatigue as a problem?
2: Fatigue is really interesting as a problem because it's so multifaceted, and I think people underestimate how um, the impact that fatigue can have on people's lives. And also, there are so many reasons why people might be experiencing fatigue. Um, you know, that fatigue in the ambulance service is uh, potentially more related to shift patterns and the work that they're doing um, and the impact that that has, whereas, there are others that experience fatigue. Um, that is unexplained or idiopathic, um, and that, that is slightly different. Uh, and some people experience it for prolonged periods and shorter periods. And it's just interesting because there are so many different uh, aspects to it and therefore the many different ways in which it can be managed. Um,
0: so. I, I, <coughs> I experience fatigue personally as a product of my brain damage, which is a, a product of critical illness. And other conditions, comorbidities also generate fatigue. But <clears throat> would you say that fatigue is a, a different experience depending on its cause?
2: Absolutely. And it's it's experienced differently by different people as well. And it depends on and the man- management strategies that are required for different types of fatigue are very different. So as, as I mentioned, if you are experiencing fatigue because you are in a job that requires you to work nights and um, change your shift change your sleep patterns a lot then the fatigue is going to be much more related to that and therefore the management strategies required for that are going to be very different from people who experience the type of uh, fatigue that you're talking about which is from chronic illness um, and, the st- and the impact of that and side effects and also that unexplained fatigue where we don't actually n- un- know why people are experiencing this fatigue and and therefore uh, the the treatment required for that or the the um, management strategies required for that are very different and very individualised to the person because everybody's in a completely, di- you know, everyone's in a different situation and can manage a different amount of, of um, types of treatment to you know that they can do.
0: I'm mindful of a number of other projects that I'm involved in or have been involved in uh, relating to fatigue, principally done by physiotherapists, and they look upon exercise as um, as a key way to overcome fatigue, would you advocate exercise as a strategy? Yes,
2: certainly. Uh, much of the work that I that I did before I came here was was looking at uh, physical activity or exercise as a management strategy. Um, it doesn't sit alone; um, it has to form for anybody. It has to form part of a, a you know much more holistic approach to to the management of any type of fatigue. But it certainly has a very important role. Um, in in supporting people in managing their symptoms
0: but if people are too, too if people are too fatigued to exercise how, how do they deal with that
2: well I think that that that's that's a really interesting question and one that that has has been asked before um <laughs> exercise I think sometimes people uh, see exercise as going out for a run or getting on a bike and doing something quite... Quite difficult in terms of physical activity. Uh, But it doesn't need to be that. So if somebody's really tired, I mean, anybody who's really fatigued or is not, it's not something you're necessarily going to feel like doing or you may not be able to do. But it can start. I mean, even people who are bedbound with illnesses, with fatigue, can still do something like movement. It's about moving and it's about working with an individual to to see what they are capable of doing and trying to in, trying to make, help them to be able to do a bit more. And that goes not just for fatigue, in my mind, it's across the board for anybody with any, um, any symptoms that, that movement is very important. And it's, exercise is quite specific, but it's actually more broad than that. It's actually helping people to be strong and um, be able to do more. Because everybody wants to, you know, if people are incapacitated by their fatigue, they generally want to be able to do more. And by improving your physical fitness and your physical ability, you're going to be able to do more. And so it's just about where you start. And if somebody's really tired, you just need to start a bit easier.
0: (laughs) So if somebody is experiencing fatigue, you would recommend just, if you can do nothing else, just go for a walk for half an hour.
2: Absolutely. Or even less. Whatever you (coughs) can manage is better than not doing anything. And even if you don't feel like it, just try to do a little bit. But you don't want to do so much. Some people experience some fatigue is experienced where if you do too much, it can make you feel worse. Mm -hmm. This that's that's unlikely in the type of fatigue that people in the ambulance service will experience. Um, But just to highlight that it's important that you work within your limits, um, and and so you need to know that if it's making you feel worse or more tired, then you need to slightly reduce it. But otherwise, yes, uh, uh, a walk outside, absolutely recommended.
0: And yeah. does that help with physical fatigue as well as cognitive fatigue, or predominantly one or the other?
2: It should help with both.
0: Oh. Oh well, I must do this. <laughs> what do you perceive to be the impact of shift work and disruptive sleep patterns upon real life? Uh,
2: I think that the impact of um, of, of shift work and and um, and you know changing shift patterns is is quite large quite big on, on on people and i think it does depend on the person some people adapt to shift work a lot better than others and it really depends on your your sleeping patterns and the sleep that you the, the sleep pattern that you would normally have when you're not doing shift work uh, but it really can it, it it really can cause people a lot of problems with their, their 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 fatigue and that that then impacts their daily lives in terms of, of um not only their ability to function at work, as we as we Christy's talked about, but also in their everyday life, it can affect relationships. You know, it can affect um, overall health because uh, eating patterns can, can um, be affected, and uh, it's very difficult to to manage all of that on your own. And I think that's why it's really important the work that we're doing to try and support people in that in that position to be able to to have that support to be able to work out how best to manage. Those shift patterns to reduce the fatigue and therefore the impact that it has on on their everyday lives and overall.
0: Are there certain personality types that are more prone to fatigue, or more prone, to, or, or or more able to more easily adapt to fatigue?
2: I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that I can answer that question myself um, about uh, personality types. But certainly, there are people that that do seem to be able to cope better um, with with changes in sleep patterns and um, and manage that themselves better uh, without having to have support from others. Um, but I think for the majority of people, that will do benefit from having some kind of support.
0: Fatigue is a physical phenomenon as well as a psychological one and cognitive one. So, where should sufferers of fatigue prioritize their self-care?
2: I think it's it's overall. I think the physical impact. I think the physical impact is what the initial impact can be with fatigue, and it then goes on to cause psychological um, effects. Mm-hmm. So, by managing that fatigue, physically managing that fatigue then it should prevent the psychological impact that it can then have.
0: Hmm. I'm just thinking about when I first came out of hospital uh, t- 20 years ago, I, it took me quite a long time to recognize the points in the day when I would become fatigued. And often my wife would say, you're tired, go and lie down. Is, is is lying down always uh, p- uh, uh, helpful?
2: Lying down can be helpful. Um, it's not something that's generally uh, recommended for people that are experiencing a lot long term fatigue. Certainly not in the long term. Mm-hmm. But it really depends on whether it's impacting your sleep at night. If you're yeah. resting in the day and it's affecting your sleep at night, then you probably would like, wouldn't, would want to avoid it. Um, resting, it's fine. Sleeping, probably less so in the day. Um, but in terms of People who are working shift work, like ambulance trust workers, it's, it's really important to, to try and work out their schedule and what works best for them. And it's really difficult to say whether a, a, a nap or a rest in the middle of the day is going to be helpful. And it's really an individualised thing, depending on when their next shift night shift is, whether they've had enough sleep. So it's, it's, it's different depending on the type of fatigue on the on the reason why you're experiencing the fatigue, but certainly in this group, um, I would suggest that it it may be correct, it may be right to have a rest in the day, but it would have to be looked at on, on a bigger scale as to you know whether it fits in with the routine that they that they're on, which is constantly changing. So,
0: if you can anticipate the practical outcomes to ambulance workers from this particular study, what do you what do you, what what would you hope would be the the outcomes that the, the, the differences that people can make in their working life.
2: Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. Do you mean in terms of of um, their functioning and how yeah, you know yeah. what they ha- have to, to do?
0: It, if 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 at the end of this study we reach certain conclusions about how the how the management should manage their staff, mm-hmm. what do you hope will be the practical recommendations to individual staff members
2: yeah so with the support from from the from their um services i think the practical that there are there will also potentially be individual recommendations um, and a lot some of the work that we did with the survey that christy mentioned in one of her other podcasts of the east ambulance service looked at the strategies that people already do use to try and support themselves some people um and it would be those type of strategies such as um Know if you're on a night off. If you're on a night shift and you're feeling as if you're tired, t- go and take a walk. <laughs> Coming back to the exercise, um, try to make sure you you rest. But you know, if you do get a chance to have a rest during your shift, um, so that you can manage it better. Um, there's some sort of controversial advice, but around caffeine as well and other things. And I think that it's those kind of individual factors are going to be. Uh, we're not entirely sure what they will all be yet, those recommendations. I think there's still ongoing work, but, but certainly there, w- there will be a list of, of suggested I- things that peop- individuals can do themselves on top of the support that they're getting from their, from their service that they can do to help themselves to keep their f- to reduce their fatigues and therefore enable themselves to live a, a better life and, and enable them to manage family life better and, and function function better within that shift pattern that they that they have to do, that they have to work because we you know the, the the thing at the end of the day is that people's lives are are fulfilling and they're able to not just work but but enjoy their lives outside of work and that's what this I, I think what this is all about really and what we're trying to get to
0: mm. your working life for all your working life has been in research yes if you could sponsor a research question what would that research question be
2: (laughs) well that's actually quite a hard question (laughs) i'm interested in so many things um i think at the moment just recently um i've been talking to some colleagues of mine about um fatigue after brain injury um and i think that that's an area where there's still some more research to be done around the benefits of of physical activity which as you know is an area of, of, of interest of mine and whether or not it can be beneficial for people at different stages of their recovery from, from, from brain injury and um, so potentially that would be a question I'd like to ask.
0: Well if you ever do pursue that as somebody with a brain injury as somebody who experiences fatigue bring me in.
1: <laughs> I will.
0: <laughs> what does your working day look like? What do you do on a typical day?
2: Well, as Christy mentioned um, about the clinical trials units, we, we, we really help investigators such as Christy to manage clinical trials. Um, on, so on a daily basis, I'm, I'm, I, owe, I sort of support about five um, different clinical trials or program grants at the moment, NIHR funded. Um, and so every day is very different because it's, it's basically supporting the investigators, troubleshooting, um, so I attend a lot of meeting, team meetings for different studies, depending on what stage they're at, um, and so, you know, just uh, provide advice as to where to go next if they're having trouble with recruitment. Um, then we'll discuss how we can enhance their, their recruitment and look at strategies for that. Um, I will look at budgets for the trials as well and the studies and make sure that things are um, on budget uh, and on time, and, uh, and so those are the kinds of things that I will do we're also um, looking at so we have investigators that come to the trials unit for support with their trials so we have to read all of the applications to, to see where we would fit into those um, and where we can support them and uh, how much that will cost <laughs> and, um, and support, support the applications as well as once they've been funded so that's, yeah, that's, that's a typical day for me
0: Oh, so so you do you you have a close relationship with the individual teams and do you act as a bridge with with the teams of the funders yes
2: yeah uh, yeah teams and funders teams and stakeholders <coughs> as well and with the sponsors and with the hosts um mm-hmm. so yes we 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 build all of the, the bridges and we support the investigators to to yeah manage the trials and and keep them on track wonder why... <laughs>
0: How how studies used to work without clinical trials units. I mean, it's you do. It sounds like you do a really very critical job.
2: Yeah. Well, my previously, um, I w- I was a trial manager, so um, not within a trials unit. So I've seen how a trial is undertaken without. So th- that those trials were without clinical trials units, mm-hmm. and so I can s- I've seen both sides of the uh, the fence, as it were, and I can see the difference. Um, and and now the benefit of having uh, a clinical trial involved in in your research, um, but you know sometimes it yeah it's there's, it costs money for clinical trials I suppose so for mm. some for some researchers they prefer to manage them themselves. But
0: how how do applicants to funding build in costs or anticipate costs for clinical trials units?
2: We have a risk-based uh, costings approach that we use, and we so we cost in the time, and we work with the investigators to find out how you know what they what they, what they would like, what support they would need. So sometimes a researcher or investigator may already have a, a somebody that they uh, that's working with them that's a perfect trial manager. So then then they wouldn't require a trial manager from us. So we wouldn't we wouldn't cost that in. and We would just provide the other support, or you know, just it it really is different different depending on the, on the study that's being um potentially funded that's yeah. Hmm. So,
0: yeah do you think there's enough compassion and understanding in clinical care when it comes to fatigue
2: that's a, another hard question jeremy <laughs> um i think that it, i think that fatigue is um often misunderstood and under underestimate the impact that it has on people is underestimated um but I think it's improving. Um, I think that w- I think part of the problem is we don't really understand a lot of the time the experiences of fatigue and why people are experiencing fatigue, and therefore it's very difficult to uh, provide management strategies. Um, I think, as I've said before, you know, for fatigue in the, fatigue when people are doing shift work is potentially different to fatigue. Uh, unexplained mm. type fatigues, um, and therefore it's easier pr- to give advice for that type of fatigue than mm. than for uh, idiopathic or unexplained fatigue.
0: I so often I have to say to people, fat- fatigue is not just being tired. tired
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's it does it impacts people people's daily lives um, very significantly, and I think that. Um, it would be good to have more more work done in this area i i have to say that one of the things that has come out of covid is and more of an understanding of the of that unexplained fatigue or mm-hmm. or post-viral type fatigue illnesses because um because so many people have experienced that type of fatigue following covid uh, but it, it did exist before um chronic fatigue syndrome and um that type of of post-viral fatigue syndrome existed before but I think there's still a lot of work to be done to understand how best to to support people uh, with that type of fatigue.
0: It sounds almost as though it should become a James Linda Lyons priority aesthetic partnership question.
2: Yes maybe you're right <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. There have been times in the past where the MRC and other funders have put out calls specifically for research in this area and there is there is some research going on to... I think we just need to understand more the mechanisms of, of the fatigue mm-hmm. first because at the moment most of the treatments for unexplained type fatigues is um, is uh, managing it rather than understanding the cause. Yeah. So um, it would be good to have more work done in that area. Um, but for, for people working ambulance trusts who, who experience the fatigue due to the shift work that they're doing and the type of work that they're doing, um, there is the, the management strategies are a, a lot more understood, I think, and things that the Ambulance Trust and the Ambulance Services can do and the individuals can do themselves are much more understood. And so hopefully the work that we're doing uh, will be able to um, clarify that a lot more for Ambulance Services and support them to support their staff, uh, So with staff to support themselves.
0: With this greater understanding, would it be fair to say that there is less a culture of blame when f- fatigue leads to unfortunate incidents than there used to be? Uh,
2: I'm, not, I'm not sure um, I'm not sure that, that, I, that I know the answer to that question mm-hmm. actually
0: um, it's, a liter- it's an interesting question if we could find somebody who who <laughs> who might has some insight perhaps perhaps one of the one of the managers might be able to answer that one.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Somebody else. That's a question for somebody else. Definitely not for me. I, I,
0: I think you know there, there should be more compassion personally.
2: I think there should always be compassion for people who are um, who are experiencing fatigue and people working in those types of jobs where they do they they are not working to a normal working pattern. It's very difficult, um, more so for some than others, um, to to work those type of um, those type of working. which are not days, um, is a very difficult job. And what's more, people in ambulance services—you know—it's a stressful job as well. They're 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 saving people's lives, and um, and they're under a lot of pressure. And I think along with that, it's um, it's very important that compassion is part of that.
1: Mm. Yeah,
0: Christy, is there anything you want to come in here before I close?
1: Yeah, I think just to sort of reiterate that point about. It's a necessary part of 24-hour healthcare delivery that we ask people to work shifts that humans are not designed to do. We are not nocturnal creatures. Um, So we have to find ways to work within and around human biology to try and kind of keep people as safe as we can when we're asking their bodies to be alert to make clinical decisions under kind of high demand or very stressful circumstances when everything is screaming in their body to say, you should be asleep (laughs) in your cave, (laughs) it's not the time to be out when the sun is down. So um, we are fighting against biology here. um, And I think we're getting sophisticated ways of understanding how we can work within the confines of human sleep biology to try and keep people as safe as possible, knowing that we will always have to provide a 24-hour service. Mm. So, it is, you know, it is a very exciting time, I think, for trying to understand how we can translate the latest out of sleep science into settings like 24-hour healthcare.
0: Mm. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Well, this has been really interesting. Lucy, and thank you, for uh, Christy... Um, As the ginger nut of time drops unexpectedly into the cup of tea and the tin of biscuits is found to be empty of destiny, I notice our time is now up. Next podcast, we will be interviewing another team member and learning how the study is making progress. And if anyone listening wishes to know more about the study, details can be found on the NIHR Applied Research Collaboration website and on the UEA website. But if you just Google catnaps, study Christy Sanderson, you will find it. Thank you for listening and goodbye.